you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. It's funny. I didn't do anything to change the desktop setup. I was doing everything on the laptop while I was out of town. Yet, I come back, and Zoom must have some idea that it's always me from place to place, and it leaves little remnants of settings behind. So... Who knows? <laughs> that, that, I mean, we were talking that the last couple of weeks, we've been talking tech and remote tech and doing all that. And that is something a lot of them do. If I look something up on my phone on Chrome, I can send it to my Chrome desktop and it'll be there when I get back. And right. if you save a, a bookmark, it goes everywhere. I, I now even uh, click the thing and I went, oh crap. Now my Safari on my Mac is getting all my Chrome bookmarks. I, I don't care for that, but okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind the synchronization, but it's it's this kind of thing where if it's smart enough to say, hey, I know that you're on your desktop instead of your laptop system, then it should also be smart enough to say, but your screen real estate on your desktop is different than on your laptop. And so yeah. it should adjust. And yet it only does so much. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Well, the, the, the scary ones that I think everybody's seen is you stop at a shopping mall and you just walk into a mattress store because you're looking at mattresses. <laughs> And then you get on Facebook and suddenly you're seeing ads for mattresses. I, I didn't do anything except walk into the store. That's where it's starting to get a little. <laughs> yeah. It, it's I, when I first, so I had a, a Mac setup and I, now I have everything on parallels and I run windows still on my Mac before I actually had a windows box over to my right. And that's where I did all of my testing and so forth. I remember plugging that windows box in and the first thing that I did was check for Windows system updates and check for antivirus stuff. And I also had a firewall running and the firewall within seconds, and I'm not kidding, I was getting pinged with attempts to penetrate. That it's immediately aware when something new comes on the net and they know that if they get in before you even run your setup, run your initial load of your machine, that they can somehow get in. And similarly, when I came back, I had, I had turned off the Mac setup here at home for a week, came back on and Safari, Apple keeps track of, it hides your IP address and it makes sure that you can't get tracked in some of the ways you just talked about. It shouldn't be that I get a coupon for beds because I walked into a bedding store somewhere with my phone. I, it had no IP trackers have tried doing anything because I had been gone for a week. It usually gives you a number. That, that day when I just happened to go back in and out of Safari, it was like 19 have tried it. So within, and I wasn't on the system until like noon because I had to crash a little bit because I hadn't slept on the plane and all that kind of stuff. So within the first couple hours that I was on of just doing pretty standard, hey, check my email here, do my Facebook there, 19 different places had tried to get information that I, that unbidden by me. You know what I mean? I have all kinds of places that I've said, sure, cookies are okay, but this is where they have the trackers that are keeping track of you from site to site, from machine to machine. <laughs> and and I don't know that there's any way to um, avoid it, but at least you don't have to be out in the world naked. At yeah. least you put on some kind of armor. Some you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, man. So, and Well, you, you should see uh, WordPress sites. I, I don't know if you've looked at any stats. 
it's like 55,000, 70,000 hits a day trying to get in. Exactly. I, I, the first version of the Smart Life, before I went to Ning and was actually doing it as a social media platform, was indeed a WordPress site. I figured I'd do a little of what we not a vlog, but a blog where I actually write and give my little, and just that. You said, hey, a first note from a friend, Dave wrote. And then it's like, oh, and here's the first 30 spams and penetrations and garbage. And it just, it, the overhead, even though I had from my um, ISP and from WordPress, the very different filters and defenses in place, they are ingenious in terms of how all the ways in which they're willing to change their subject line, change their ISP. They have a whole you know raft of places that they try to look like a white hat site while they're being, or not, or a white listed site while being black. And I just, it really was, wow, I'm having trouble keeping up with this and I know what I'm doing. I think of all the folks that are just going, I'm going to start a, a blog about my kitten. I got a new kitten. We're going to grow up together on the internet. And then they must just get pounded. No, I, they do. But that's the really scary part is they don't know it because they've learned that people are smart enough now. They're not going to click. Most people aren't going to click the link, aren't going to answer the emails. So they right. do this stuff. Some of them now they're trying to get in so they can start processing for cryptocurrency and use your computer without you knowing it. And that's all they want. Or this malware now where it locks everything you own. And, and I tell you, I always feel bad for there's all kinds of people that created a tool for the world saying, hey, we should have a web server that anybody can use. Apache and all the open source movement that created that. And my guess is that they now spend 10% of their time on new features and better stuff and 90% of their time on cybersecurity because they know how popular Apache has become and they know that it's so targeted. And same with WordPress. These guys said, we should make an easy blogging platform. We should have a way that you can or other places where they do things that you can write a post and it automatically sends it out to various blogs or podcasts or whatever. And they just wanted to figure all that out with how to use RSS and stuff. And then you find out that you have to be the the guardian at the gate for everybody that's using your tool. Yeah. Oh man, that's not what I've always signed up for. I like learning about cybersecurity. I've done hacky type things when I was younger. But the reason I didn't make it as a career was because it was just so tedious. Well, the I, level of detail, the closeness yeah. to the machine you have to get to be able to. I um, actually have considered delving into WordPress website security very in depth and doing contract work for that because that's you could great. make a career out of yeah. it, man. I mean, you, know, it's, <laughs> it, you could charge if people's sites are getting hacked and they're losing money every day. Yeah. How much do you want us to pay you to get this fixed? here you go. And, and I know I could do it. It's just a matter of learning, of spending whatever days, times I need to learn it. I, I, how many things have I learned in the last 30 some years? Exactly. And, you know, there, there's power, there's value in always having novelty. Is always, I'm, I want to learn something new. Why not? This is an yes. important thing in the world. You're probably like I am. I have all kinds of friends, family members that like when something goes wrong on the computer, hey, Al, can you come over and take a look at it? Both Mac and Windows. And so I had Back way back when, sets of diskettes or CD-ROMs or uh, and now thumb drives and all that kind of stuff, being able to get on the internet, all the tools that you use. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they interpret anything going wrong with their machine as, oh, like, I think I got a virus, I think I'm being attacked. And it's funny, it wasn't often that. Sometimes I would go on and they really were infected, infiltrated, and I really had to run multiple 
scans and multiple tools to be able to get all the various different things that they allowed to happen to their machine. And most of the time I was able to leave them in a clean state and with things that like, okay, it's going to automatically update your virus definition. So you need to make a list when Sophos wants to update, say yes, because that's a legitimate one. Sometimes what they're doing is they're masquerading as, hey, I got a fresh update for, and then they spell McAfee wrong or something like that. But if people don't catch on to that, and, and so the reason for saying all that was that another way in which my job just changed, that it used to be that most of the time it was, no, maybe you need to be defragmented back when that mattered, when before solid state drives. Maybe you just, you don't have enough space and you need to clear your caches or whatever else it might be. And nowadays it is often, they really do have malware. They really do have stuff that has gotten on and it's yeah. cracking every press on their keyboard. And this is meant to be a little paranoia inducing. A lot of times I'm the one that actually reassures and says, as long as you keep your virus definitions up to date, you're going to be okay. Man, they just, there's money to be made. There's so much cunning stuff being done, especially this could, this, as you know, we have you know, probably 10 different topics that could be, let's only talk about that the entire thing. I have all kinds of friends that they don't keep up to date, even in the version of Windows. And so as you lag, it, it, your virus definitions and whatever Windows does to keep you up to date, they're good, but they're not as good as whatever they've done now to create a really secure management of memory. And really, uh, it's better and better just with the Windows version. And if you're like two or three versions of Windows old, you might be getting new virus definitions, but you are not state-of-the-art in terms of all the ways in which they try to penetrate. (laughs) The other idea I had, too, is taking old laptops for 50, 100 bucks, 10 years old like that, and putting Linux on it and making it into a like gateway between people's cable modem or router and their computer. And that kind of would sell it, reselling it for 200, 300 bucks. And Hey, it's protects you very well. It does it. It's a possibility, but a lot of people don't want to mess with that. And that's, I think the biggest thing they can do is get a little educated, learn a little bit, think a little bit before just, Oh my God. And clicking and whatever. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, that's, I don't know. I'm, I'm spoiled by Apple. The Macintosh has been relatively secure, both out of it. The, and know, it's Linux based exactly that under the hood. It, it's relatively strong. It's less of a market, but it's still got maybe, I think like 25% market share compared to 75. So people who are doing it for money or doing it for a claim, they're going to go after the biggest. The corpse have. So that's where real, you know, valuable data lives and stuff like that. But, but having said that, it, it's, um, I, I like the fact that they have a gateway. They make sure that you can turn things on for your Mac and they mostly operate in the background pretty strongly without constant alerts. Because that's one of the other things is if you set your alerts to tweakily, then you're continually getting, Hey, there's something came into an email that is suspicious. So we quarantined it. And the more that there is overhead associated with these things, the more people start to go, I don't have time for that. And then not do it, not clean up, not uh, run the scan when it should be done. So uh, the Mac seems to have found a pretty good balance between that. And I have, the only times I ever had problems is when I made a mistake, I brought it on myself as compared to that the Mac software failed. Even zero day exploits and stuff like that, they're very good about immediately getting word out in all the ways they can about you need to update the XYZ dot one <laughs> and, and make sure you have the latest things that are going on. It's what an unfortunate overhead. 
but as if that's not the way the world is. You know what I mean? You can't get anything in the mail nowadays without worrying about, hey, is this another car warranty extension? Is this another? <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, what's it like to have gone to California and realize you hit a time warp and come back to Ohio and you're in winter again? It really was weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I It's kind of funny. I dressed for here when I left and I wore the same clothes back. So I actually had like sweats and a, and, a, and a heavy shirt on and stuff like that. Everybody else on the plane coming out of California was in shorts and et cetera, et cetera. Or especially my flight went from San Diego to Vegas to here. So everybody was Vegas dressed. You know what I mean? And yet there I was waiting for Colleen to pick me up at seven in the morning yesterday and really being glad that I happened to have a hat and gloves with me because otherwise it would have been like hiding inside looking for her car. Right. I woke up and it's yeah. this freeze warning. And I'm like, it is May this weekend. <laughs> I should be planting yeah. crops and mowing lawn, not, you know, battling, scraping frost off my windshield. Exactly. It's very funny. While I was gone, we had enough rain so that the grass really grew. And so I really should get out there and mow it. But then the grass had like hoarfrost on it, but it had a tinge of, I got to wait for that to melt off and dry out. And then I'll mow the lawn. Yes. So they're going to have clumpage. And our, we're, I'm invested now in this cute little apple tree. We got the Honeycrisp tree. I'm trying to go out. I put all the right unguents and ointments on it so that it should be growing. But really, anytime you get close to a hard freeze after it started to bloom, that's the kind of stuff that like kills orange crops in Florida. I don't want that to happen to my little tree. And yet we sure seem to be that nice, relatively steady flow between seasons has been disrupted by climate change. And will it, will it go back? we're sure showing few signs of that. You know what I mean? That we've done an historic thing in the last 30 years to warp what's happening. And maybe the new normal is going to be that there's going to be an Indian winter, just like there's an Indian summer. They're going to start to warm up and then it's going to clamp back down. And, and, and I have certain overhead, for instance, I have a closet where I have my summer clothes and my winter clothes in the front and the back. And I do a big transition, usually like around May 1st, because I'm pretty sure that I can bring out all the t-shirts and the muscle shirts and put away all the sweatshirts. Well, given that I have three days to go and that I'm still wearing long sleeve shirts and sweats, it's like, maybe I'll check the weather report a little bit and see whether I can really, because it's two hours worth of work to move all of my stuff and arrange it and clean it up. Big. Really, it's funny taking things down off of it. (laughs) I know I'm all over the place today. I've noticed I got the weird thing. I, I, a certain direct lift with my arm, I'm still strong this way. But if I do a certain thing like back this way, twinge, and <laughs> that's where my shirts are hanging. They're over my head. How many I have to be precise in my movements now instead of just mm. being unthinking to make sure I don't twinge myself moving shirts. Right. You know, it's not like I'm lifting concrete blocks over my head. Darn this aging thing. It's just so undignified. <laughs> I, yeah. What's gotten me, which I didn't really expect, is my elbows at night. If I have my arms up a little bit, my, they fall asleep. I, I have to, and they, then they <gasps> ache. And okay. I, it just started in the last couple of years. I'm like, oh, whatever. And, and, and I, yeah, this is worth mentioning because I am very happy and surprised that I've never gotten carpal tunnel syndrome because I'm really on the computer a lot. And that's you know, those repetitive stress injuries. That's an invitation to do it. But right. I've usually been pretty ergonomically correct where I sit at my desk correctly and I have its right angles and all that kind of stuff. Having said that, 
I did have a thing, well, I guess last year, about now this time, where I started to thought, think I had, oh no, I'm finally getting it in my right forearm. And what it turned out to be is it's not from that movement necessarily. It's that I have in my neck and back places where if I stay in the wrong position too long, I'm squeezing, pinching, doing things with nerves there, and it doesn't hurt back there. It radiates right. downwards into your limbs. And so that's where I'm getting it. I had gone to the physical therapy place and they had given me all my exercises for how to strengthen your neck muscles and do your things that keep things tense. And it went away over the course of time, not instant, but I actually got rid of it. I was a fool. I went out to California and set up at a dining room table because they don't really have a desk for me to work at. And in between not having all my usual ergonomic correctness, a week worth of being out there, and now I'm feeling it again. And it was also, I was right mousing instead of left mousing. This is a cool thing. A testament to the brain's plasticity. One of the first things I did when the right one was hurting is, well, I'll switch to left mousing. And as you might imagine, if I was writing with my left hand, I'd look like a fifth grader because you just don't have the precise motor control <laughs> if you're a righty instead of a lefty. But if you do it every day, no, I'm very facile. I don't know if that's exactly the right word. I'm very good with moving the left mouse and being able to do things. But somehow when I set up there, I did it. What was most instinctive to me was, which was right-hand mousing. And I paid the price. So now I have to redo all the work I did a year ago. It's, it's funny. I don't want to be, it's like fragile. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't oh, want yeah. to be there. Oh no, if I work in the wrong place, if I don't have exactly the right angle, I was at 85% instead of 90 and that did me wrong. And sometimes you don't realize it until you wake up or you're going to sleep. It feels a little like it yeah. did before. Damn it, yeah. I, I don't have time for this. It, let's I don't be have honest. energy to put into this. Most of that blame can be placed on civilization. There is that. If I was being a, a hunter with less fine motor skill and grosser movements, like throwing that spear into a mastodon, then I guess, but then I'd be getting Tommy John's things up here. <laughs> Your life expectancy would be a lot less too. So before that even happened. That's true. <laughs> There was no such thing as rheumatoid arthritis right. and heart attacks when you live to 35, that kind of thing. So yeah. Bach oh. has had it right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> live, live fast, die young, leave a beautiful corpse. Right. My, my corpse is going to be pretty grisly. So, you know, okay, segue. Speaking of life, I sent yes. you an article that they discovered all the base proteins needed for life in asteroids. And that was pretty cool to see, pretty interesting. Exactly. It's a big question, right? Where do yeah. we come from? And, and if you will, why are we here? But at least for the where do we come from, a big hurdle for most people to get over is the idea of spontaneous generation. <laughs> that if you really just had things in a, in a primordial puddle on this planet, and you had a electric strike, a lightning strike go through it and like give it some electricity, and that from that you'd get enough arrangement of amino acids and all the various different things that they feed on to create life. And Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Well, that's more of a revival, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, but yeah, but I guess that's an interesting thing is the big hurdle. And it's very like almost monster movie science fiction is maybe it didn't take that very against the spontaneous generation. Maybe we were seeded that if those meteorites hit, the, hit us and they had the building blocks and those things were interstellar space, they're totally frozen. There's nothing to them except they have the, the potential. And then they come here and they say, good Lord, we got water. We got all the right nutrients heat, that we need. Light. And they just start 
growing and recombining and doing all that miraculous from single cell to multi-cell to like starting to have senses. All you need to have is a patch that's slightly more sensitive to light than others. And those develop into, I like things and little sending out tentacles. (laughs) It's, and actually it's funny. I make fun of it because it's a difficult thing. Even though I'm, I'm really sure that's how things worked out. It's difficult to think of how did that happen? But then how, maybe we've talked about this a little before. I did um, genetic programming for a while. And what genetic programming does is it simulates natural selection. You run, you start off with very simple building blocks, and then each generation you, you build a survival function in. It says more of, it's not a single solution, it's a colony of creatures, if you will. And the ones that are getting some slight advantage in terms of how much they are getting better at solving this problem, have them breed into the next generation, and not drastically, but just slight variations over the course of time. But you start off with 10,000 trading creatures and you run it for 10,000 generations. And it was amazing and heartening to see that's enough. I got incredible, sophisticated, quote, life forms, things that really were doing some very sophisticated things just under that um, natural selection pressure and the survival of the fittest and all the things that Darwin speculated about and we see in nature the way that the finches beaks are different and the way that we go from single to multi-cell and all that kind of stuff i created in my own and i really it wasn't the prime mover unmoved i did not design anything into the system that said make me something that's a really good at for instance because i was doing it for trading systems it was am i gonna um buy low and sell high am i going to buy all of something and try to monopolize am i going to look for the little um, changes that happen quickly and see if I can get in first and all that kind of stuff. I didn't tell the systems to do any of those things. But then the observations of what I had created, you started to see, wow, this is a really good predator. Uh, uh, this is a really good herbivore that it just eats its resources around it and grows bigger over the course of time. This is really a good scavenger. It doesn't try to eat anything new. It waits for things to die off and then gets what nutrients it can out of them. And there was like little analogies you could make all the different kinds of things that lived in my colony. And so going back from that, it's um, the way that I most understand it myself is, wow, I've seen it happen. I've I tried to do exactly what kinds of things would have been around at the very start. And we've had, let's see, the universe has been around for 15 billion, right? And the earth has been around for 4 billion of that. Right. And people's eyes glaze over when you think of big numbers like that. There's a classic where, What's the difference between a million and a billion seconds? And it's this one, I, I, I wish I had this exact, this one is like days plus hours. This one is many years. It's, right. it's a huge difference in order of magnitude in, in that kind of thing. And so, man, the world solves things. You can see just, I've been around for 60 years. I've seen how various different environments have changed, like different plants that are better at being photosynthesizer or better at covering more territory or better at, you know what I mean? Like they breed because they make one really good strong one or they put out tons of different saplings and then you get a whole field of these various different things and just all the ways in which nature tries things. And then you see, wow, it doesn't work the same everywhere. So that's why it's not a whole planet of only oak trees. It's because based on how much sun and what kind of soil and how much water and the temperature variation during the course of the year, you get that incredible diversity that infinite diversity and infinite combinations leads you to amazingly 
beautiful bioscape. Right. And it, it's all around us. How can you refute the truth of it? And yet then they have court cases in Dover, Pennsylvania that are still trying to say there must have been a, a plan for it. No, there's a million, skillion, trillion unplanned things going on all the time and, all around you. And that's, you get that a lot. And that's what people think automatically when you say, oh, there's life out there. Why haven't they contacted us? Why don't we do that? There's multiple problems wrong with that. First of all, when you do talk about that large scale of years, Bill gave a really great example in the one talk that essentially if you take the beginning of Earth as the bottom of the Empire State Building, you go all the way to the topmost tower, and then you put a dime on top of that, and then a playing card on top of that, man has been around in the width of that playing card. So there could be on the 94th floor, there could be another planet like that one big one that we just heard about from 12 billion years ago that's already gone. There could be another planet at the 94th floor timeline that had life that could have been there for 50 million years before it was destroyed, and it still wouldn't be alive when we're... So there's that issue. But the other thing that even less people realize and think about, we're not talking about life necessarily that's human beings that fly spaceships. Life could be creatures like the dinosaurs that have, they were on our planet for 65 million years. It could be life like that somewhere else. There, there was that. That didn't go interstellar. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Interstellar. Interstellar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a great thing called the Drake equation. I think you might yes. have heard about this, right? Where it tries to take what are all the factors that make it easy or hard for us to ever have a, an extraterrestrial encounter. And it's the vastness of time and the yep. vastness of distance and the coincidence of, of all those places that might be able to actually grow life forms that become relatively complex. How many are really going to make it to sentient life where you can actually think of going off planet? You know what I mean? Right. And, and so it's vanishingly small. It will be an incredible coincidence if we're able to ever make contact because the universe is just too big and time is too long. And people say things like, <laughs> we've been broadcasting radio and TV signals for like 100 years. Who cares in interstellar terms? That's, That's right. And how far have they reached? Yeah. Things are light years away and right. a radio signal doesn't travel at the speed of light. And so it is just that. We just dropped a rock in the pond and it's we got a, a circle this big. But the pond is right. It's like they've been looking at the stars and they haven't detected any. Okay, hold on. First of all, our equipment just now is starting to detect planets that have water and have the right golden zone that they're in and all of that. We're just now being able to detect this. So we've just been shooting out. And do they understand how many stars there really are? are that you couldn't even see the percentage number of the amount we've seen so far. Yeah. It's whenever I want that sense of wonder, that sense of we've been out the dark star park and you really get an idea of the Milky way and that it's not just the constellations, the hundred stars you can see in the sky against city light, light pollution, yeah. but and not only dark star, but you got into a whole area of the country like North and South Dakota, you get away from the cities. And it really is just an ocean of stars. And so you can think of what an amazing thing that was to the ancients, where they, no wonder they thought that gods lived up there or that things were different than how we are. But even just getting a taste of that recreates the wonder of it and everything that NASA is doing now to say we have now telescopes that can see further back towards the start of the universe and what really happened. And we have man-made objects that like the first one that made it outside the solar system. 
and then made it outside of the, I think it's called the heliosphere, like where the sun's energy is not the most important thing for how to find uh, solar wind and stuff like that. So the fact that we can even contemplate that kind of thing, doing it and getting outside of our tiny little ball around this relatively yellow, absurd little star in comparison to what kinds of things are out there. And the satellite that went out there, this is why we need to keep the humpback whales. It will be back. It has to talk to them. (laughs) Exactly that. (laughs) Exactly. Something's going to come to the planet, just talk to things in the water, and then go away because they contacted the most intelligent form of life. We haven't been listening to the dolphins, the humpback whales, because it's going to happen. Yeah, it's there. It's science uh, um, gives us so many opportunities for wonder. That's I like the rigor of it. I like that you can actually you have a way of explaining to each other in a way that we can agree. Here's why we think this is true. And but having said that, there's a certain amount of science bumps into religion, and that they want to curtail it or they want to say no that isn't a complete story. Here's a better story, if you will. I don't know. There's a really good one from Eddie Izzard, if I remember right, where he has a little, uh, so if you were God and you were to see that on this little green marble that some little animals that you created long ago have finally got smart enough that they made it off of their blue marble and made it to the gray marble nearby, (laughs) That would have been the time to show up and say, well done, yeah. you apes. And yet that didn't happen. It's, what an amazing achievement to escape the surly bonds of Earth. Or, or is it? Is that just a common expected thing that you know that we need to really break the multi-dimension and the time boundaries? It you know, could be the, all that's exactly a tiny first step towards what really our awareness of the universe is and really yeah. what God has expectations for us and stuff like that. Right. But I just, that's another one of those things like sometimes the absence of something, it ain't proof, but it's more, like, oh, that would have been the right, right time. That like, would have been a good opportunity. <laughs> Big Bang Theory, when they're signing Sheldon's roommate agreement, and he says, this is in effect, unless, of course, I invent time travel, in which case I'll come back to this exact time and we'll change this. And then they look around. Okay, we don't have to worry about that one. But it, it, I, I love hearing those things and seeing those things because it, when people say there's no life out there, I don't believe in aliens. Great. I don't believe in aliens necessarily either, but it doesn't mean there's not life out there. That's a lot harder to convince me that th- there's nothing somewhere else. We'll see. When we first start to see some sign of, wow, that's not a natural structure, that there's actually some sign of radiation a an emitted thing that isn't natural then we'll say well, what could have created that and you have to start thinking that maybe places are doing what we're doing first fire we'll get to nuclear we'll right. get to perfect solar we'll get to whatever zero point energy there will be signs if not direct observation of creatures walking around on a planet that something's going on interestingly that's we'll see that kind of supposes that there's another planet that's the same age of stars, same age of the planet, and the evolution has been the same time span. There's still so much variable in there. Again, billions of years, folks, billions of years. It could be, Bill used an example of slime mold and how interesting slime mold is compared to any other creature on Earth. If we've got something like that right here on Earth, 
and it's alive, we wouldn't even be able to detect that on something that is 200 billion light years away, even if we could see the star, you know? That's right. That's right. It, I, I love the fact that science keeps on doing things to expand what we're even capable of. And we've talked about this a little bit before. It's the instrumentation that is giving us new insight. The more that you can see yeah. really tiny and see how things happen at that submolecular, maybe even subatomic level, you get insights as to how things really work and that it really is not certainties, but probabilities. And that it really is, you want to, there's, maybe there's linking spooky action at a distance in terms of synchronicity between quarks across. And just that, that as we had the Aristotelian model and then went Einsteinian, we've had to change our view of how physics, how the world really works. And there's probably still things to be discovered there. And then also those views out into the, the big world, we were actually able to see that star that you think is really beautiful. That star's dead. Yeah. The amount of time that it took for that light to reach us is such that star burnt out, that nova no longer really exists, but we're getting the after effect. We're getting the shadow. So, you know what I mean? So how can you say that there couldn't have been a solar system formed then the, the, that had a planet that had a sun that was very similar to ours, and they went through the whole several billion years of change and growth to where the star went nova? Because what's, what's to say that whenever 4 billion years from now, 8 billion, whatever it is, when our star goes Nova and destroys the earth and there's nobody left here, <laughs> some other planet, it, people are going to say, there's no life there. Again, there was. And what you said about the wonder, like you said, we've got the spooky science, the quantum physics, which mm-hmm. I've gotten into and love and all that. And the fact that NASA scientists have said, yes, we're able to detect dimensions, but we have no way of interacting or seeing them. We can just see the effects they have on our dimension. And that's the only way they can say they're there. So we don't know much, but you know what this is really doing? All of this science, all these things we're learning and changing the way we're thinking and all of that, what it's really doing, it's destroying science fiction as a genre for books (laughs) because what's going to be that interesting anymore? science fiction that I read, it really is substantively different than from yes. the 50s or oh, 70s yeah. or 90s. You know what I mean? I've read various different generations of it, if you will. And so it's cool that they're still, they're finding ways to speculate. They're finding ways to say, once we really figure out how DNA works and we can alter it, what could we do to create various different strains, artificial strains of humanity? We'll all still be the same race, but it really might be that you'll have um, be able to colonize other planets because we give people better lung capacity or right. better muscle mass or even just different senses or whatever else it might be. So I'm hoping that science fiction will actually continue to say <laughs> a totally different yeah, way. This might've been a really naive thing in the HD Wells days. And yet nowadays we can talk about nanotechnology, we can talk about the um, I'm, I'm still liking the fact that there's still such remarkable creativity that they're still out there on the edge a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All right. Hey, okay. I got a recommendation for today. If uh, uh, You got anything you were hankering to really bring up? Um, let's, we didn't I'll, I'll say real it. quick. Fan Expo is happening this weekend. I will be there Sunday. Okay. I thought I wasn't going to be able to go because it was going to be California stuff and mind game stuff. And you and I had actually talked about it at one point. Hey, are we going to do maybe a podcast from right. there? Or am I going to do a presentation? And as life has gotten complex, I really stopped trying to overcommit myself and make all that not a joy, but a hassle. But a, oh my God, exactly. 
no, that that's uh, I, if it'll be a pleasure to bump into you, hook up with you on Sunday if you'd like. I'm probably going to be there all three days. There seems to be enough cool panels and yeah. guests and all that kind of stuff. And as usual, I'll be the guy that's. Like, I want to go to Artist Alley and talk to my heroes. I don't really care about the movie stars as much. I don't care about waiting hours in line in order to get into a specific presentation. Right. So I'm just going to drink all that in. And but we will see all of our usual friends there, our Cleveland creators, and yeah. some. I'm going to go look them up. Oh, William Shatner's going to be there again. Jim Lee's going to be. I'm trying to think. There's a whole Jason I, Mewes, be, Kevin Smith. That's my, true. The I, one Jay and one, Silent Bob will be there, both yes. in and out of character, and that's. Jason Mewes is almost always in character, so I really think that might just be him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but John Delancey is going to be there. And okay. I know everyone thinks, oh, Q, great. But he was in a series with Richard Dean Anderson in the early 90s called Legend. And it was, it was a Western in the, like, okay. the late 1800s. Okay. And Richard Dean Anderson was a writer who wrote adventure books, but everyone thought he was the character in the book and this adventure hero and john delancey was uh, a scientist q type so they combined it to have adventures and help people out so the adventurer and then john delancey would create all these gadgets and science and but i've never seen an episode of this this sounds really cool it was pretty cool it's not the best ever it only lasted for one season because okay. obviously no one else really got it at the time. I loved it, but I wanted, I don't want to pay 55 bucks and stand in line for my whole day, but I'd yeah. love to take a copy of the DVD to have him sign because I bet hardly anybody else has ever done that to him. That is actually a, a, a wonderful thing. I've been at various different places where when you don't just go with the everyone knows about it work, but you do, they're more obscure, but maybe they're also favorite labor of love. They're just so tickled that somebody remembers not only their main thing, but other right. things in their career. So right. that'd be cool. Okay. I did forget who one of the Star Trek uh, actors or whatever was somewhere. And I wanted to take the latest Star Wars movie and ask them if they liked it. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> exactly. Why would you do that? Really? Remember me. This. Remember Ooh. that idiot that asked me? About <laughs> <laughs> You'll become a story for them. See? Exactly. So. <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the thing. I'd love to do that. It is okay. very cool with all the Picard stuff going on, leading to a next generation, you know, re- revi- not a revival, but at least a reunion. Reunion, you know yes. I mean? Yeah, exactly. That's and very cool. Did so. you see the trailers for the Christopher Pike show? No, I have not. Oh my gosh, Alan, look it up. The okay. Chris- I- I've talked to several people, and a lot of people are like, eh, Discovery, it's you know not been my thing it's not star so they're trek. going all the way back to men- the menagerie the very first yes. star trek pilot but look answer. up the trailers because it looks like the best star trek in years it yeah, it really feels like the old series but yeah. looks a little bit more like next generation with the production value and it just all i've seen is a trailer but you gotta right, go right. grain of salt but i looked at it and i'm like everything about this trailer just speaks to me of star Trek, uh, you know? So I'm super excited. I like Picard. I like discovery. I like the lower decks. I haven't seen the prodigy yet, but I would just absolutely love, or I'm so, I, it looks so good. I can't yeah, wait. Maybe the showrunner, maybe the main writer and stuff like that. They really have caught that essence of star Trek in the same way that I thought about the Mandalorian and how John Favreau really gets star Wars. You know what I mean? That sometimes things are, 
only an offshoot. They really don't have the core of what made that series cool in it, and sometimes they do. Sometimes people are enough of a fanboy or enough of just a, a smart guy that's taken all those other things and said, that wasn't quite right in each of these cases, so I'm going to avoid right. all that, and I'm going to try to go closer to the main line of what yeah. makes those series. So you should look okay. it up. Uh, just look Thank for you. the trailer. Okay. Um, so Legend plus Pike, Christopher Pike. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know if you'll find Legend anywhere. Uh, sometime I'll, I'll loan you the DVD if you want to watch it. It's, it's not ton, too many episodes. So it won't take you too long. Again, okay. it's 90s, so it's different TV, but it was a quirky, unique aspect of TV. For me. Very good. So, okay. Okay, so here's to yours. Exactly. my recommendation. Colin and I discovered a new game, uh, Machi Koro. Have you played it? No, Machi Koro. Okay. It's a, think of it like a SimCity uh, card game, <laughs> but not that complex. Yeah. It's a, a SimCity light in a way. It's interesting because you get a little bit like Dominion, you get places to buy and you have restaurants, you have major establishments and you have various things, some that give you food and stuff. So you, you can buy them. And then on your everybody's turn, you roll a die or two and it activates certain uh, of your city parts, your card, depending on the die roll. And each card then will either give you money or you steal money from someone else or you trade establishments. It has various abilities on the card. Okay. The so idea that's the randomizer. Instead of it being everything deterministic, there's a random element of, yes. even if you've planned, not all your plans will work out exactly like you intended. Yes. Okay. And each person has four legendary places, I forget what they call them, that once you build those four, you win the game. And they give you power. And so the idea is some of these cards, you get money on other people's turn. Some of these cards, everybody gets money if it gets activated. So there, there's a, do you want something that will get activated on other people's turns or only your turn or whatever? Yeah. So it's a fun game. My family loved it we played it over easter and it was like let's play another game let's play another game so See, that's the sign of a good game is we yeah. immediately think of well, i got a new strategy i want to try or just that was good and the, yes. the length is correct where it's not oh my god this took all night i'm exhausted and it's more yeah it's an hour and a half yeah. let's try again and it everybody felt good afterwards it wasn't like one person dominated like sometimes have colin's good at that we'll play games with him that he knows in and out and we get done and with it it's like, yeah, okay. colin had 80 points i had four so it wasn't like that at all. It's like right. even the person who won, other people had two or three of the four built. So it always okay. felt close enough. Colin and I have played a couple of times and we agree that if you have just the base set, it'd be very easy to build a strategy, do that every time. And okay, now it's no fun. It's okay. too repetitive. But we also got the expansions with it and they randomized the card. We played one last night that was really difficult just in the stuff but and, and he said well, i guess your strategy didn't work and i was like well that's part of the fun of the game like dominion i was trying something completely different he went with a standard i analyzed all the cards and these are the powerful ones that'll give me this and now i won the game i'm like okay fun for you but i tried something totally different it okay. didn't work uh and i did make a mistake on some of my buying and okay. but i realized oh if we had this other card i could have fixed that mistake and hampered him so you know it, it, it's got that to it so there's the recommendation uh is machi koro my i love 
things like that, where it isn't only, hey, I read a review in a magazine and it's got four stars out of five and stuff. It's that someone whose taste matches mine, who's every, much about their how they evaluate something I trust, and that out of all the ones that you've played, this one stands out. And that's a very cool personal recommendation. It, it's a know? good so, one. It, it's yeah. not quite as much fun with two people. I had much more fun with four. And if you get the expansion, you can then play five. But with two, it wasn't quite as much fun because some of them take three uh, coins from the active player. With two people, it's always, or it's even get one coin from every other player. But lessons. So yeah, a couple people is much more fun. It's a casual enough game with enough strategy to appeal to everybody. Interesting. That's as I mentioned, Mind Games is going on this weekend. And, yes. you know, for, for those of us who, who, who listen to our podcast, it's a very cool event. It's something that I don't know anything else like it besides what Mensa runs. It's Mensa deals with tons of different game manufacturers and composers. And we get 60, 70, 80 games, which have not been released to the market yet. And we get hundreds of people, 300 going on 400, all gathered together in a big old hotel ballroom. And we play all those games over the weekend everybody has to play at least 30 out of that set and they're randomized so that it really isn't oh the strategy people only play strategy and the word people and the party people and whatever else it might be so from all of that you get all the different reviews and the manufacturers get feedback like hey this the quality of your materials could be better or this there's a particular way in which this turned out that you might want to alter a rule because we kept running into the same logjam or whatever it's an immersive sleepless experience often but out of that comes the mensa select that we get we put the sticker on so that between now and christmas when they all gear up for the christmas buying season if you went and bought those mensa select games every year you'd have a really good game collection yeah because there's usually a variety of a deep strategy and kids game and a card game with a new twist or whatever else it might be and, and i love that event and it's killing me this year <laughs> that I, I was signed up it's in portland maine Colleen and I were ready to jump on the road, drive there. But besides the event, do a little bit of touring around there because the Northeast is always interesting and beautiful. And then taking care of mom out in California just was wrong overlap to make it so that I, I couldn't just get home and immediately get on the road. And I, But all of our friends are going to be there this weekend, and yeah. they're all going to have that great experience. But and, and interesting because one of the things that I've also thought is it's some people are really completed. They try to play every single game, not just 30, but 60, 70, 80 games. So they get the whole survey of what's out there. But I always thought would be another interesting indicator of success as a game would be that we start on Thursday and you go until Saturday midnight, let's say. You have to get your, your votes in by a certain time so they can tabulate and be ready with the awards on Sunday morning. They should, for people who have finished, they should do a continual browse around the room and see. Of all the games that people have already played, which ones are they playing again now? That not right. because they have to, because they voluntarily said that Machi Koru game was really interesting. I'm sorry if I mispronounced it, and I want to try it again. I had the ideas as to I should try a different strategy. I want to play it with two people and six people. And I want to, I mean, like, right. to me, games that have great replayability are the one that probably is there's multiple different factors. And that's the one that matters the most to me is that it won't be, I played that. And I played it to death and it got stale. And then I never played it after the first yeah. two years or something like that. Yep. I like games that every time you take them down and with different groups of people and different frames of mind, 
that you just have a different experience. There's something very cool that people figure out something that has that infinite diversity or to tie it all together. That little observation of what are the things that are never sitting on the table where the games are stored, but that they're always out being played, yep. that would be a very cool thing to add as additional statistics to correct. Yeah, just even in the comments. And and it's important, and I think you you touched on this, that people, we've run into it, everybody has biases and stereotypes for stuff. And you mentioned Mensa people, and it's like, oh, big brains, and they think they're all (laughs) rocket scientists, and oh, I wouldn't play a game that they all, that's not it at all. Herkel is a Mensa select game, and I've not met anybody that doesn't like Herkel. When I introduced my family to Herkel, they all went out and bought it and they put it in their yeah. camper. They bought a copy for home and they, people yeah. who say, it's Oh, I don't beautiful play. while you play yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 They say, I don't play a lot of games. We're not games. People we'll try this one. And they played it. Oh yeah. I had to go buy it. It's yeah, it's cool. oh, you mentioned monopoly. Everybody's played monopoly. Even non-game people know monopoly. Oracle yeah. is one of those. My, my point is, like you said, Mensa select can be depended on to be games that have really been tested by people who like to play games that know what makes a good game. And it's, I, I love, so you start off and everybody's really intent. They know they got to get their work done. And then there's all vendor variety, so many of which are party games. And all, suddenly in a corner of the room, bursts of laughter because they're playing curses for the first time, or they're, they're playing right. something that I can't wait to try that one. Even if it's not on my list, I want to try that one because it made spontaneous laughter happen. And that's yeah. a cool thing. I'm, my particular quirk, they often not only have two to six type games, people, but they'll have puzzles and individual type things. And I love like in between my playing and, and really paying attention and, and tuning into humanity. It's fun to me to go off and do the latest variation on Rubik's Cube, the latest variation on shifting pieces puzzle. You know what I mean? That you got to make your little cars go through the parking lot in the right order. Or <laughs> yeah. something like that. And I just, those are often... Uh, the, the way it also works is that everybody gets to take a couple of games home with them. But they really keep, everything is kept in good repair. Things aren't worn down by everybody playing. Right. And they actually do a big collecting of all the stray pieces that they just, something's fall on the floor or whatever. They rebuild all the games so that everybody's got a complete intact copy of the game. And Sunday morning, they go through in a big random order and people get to choose the ones they want. I will often go with, because I'm a geek, <laughs> one per dollar. You know what I mean? I really love a game, but I can buy it for 12 bucks. I'll go buy it for 12 bucks. Right. $5 game. Even if it's like third down on my list, it's like 55 bucks for free. I, so I, I have a certain amount of that. Some, and, and another way in which they do the Mensa selector often based on the card votes, but if they just went on, which were the games that flew off the shelves at the right. giveaway, that should be another thing where really wanted that either sometimes because it's expensive and that perturbs it a little bit. But it's also just people can't wait to get a copy of that for home. They're going to have that for eight months before Christmas. They can't wait. They can't right. wait for the buying season. There's something about the fanatic vote, the gamer fanatic vote, that also is something that should be kept. Yep. And also, that'll be fun. It'll be a great event. And it's interesting, too, because Colin and I also played this week a game called Loch Ness because we like the cryptids and it looked exactly. cute on the box. Good artwork. So we opened up to start playing and I was reading the directions and figuring it all out. And the, now this was good because our local game company in Ravenna donates games to the library that you can check out for demo. And I was like, this is great. I'm going to do it and support that. If nobody yeah, checks them out. So we're trying to lock this and I'm reading it. 
And the very first thing was I run into grammar errors in the instruction book. And I'm like, and then they, there were a couple things they said to do. And I'm like, that makes absolutely no sense because this would be a better way of doing it. So I, I, I questioned how pet much testing it got. So then Colin and I said, let's give it a try. And we're reading. He's like, why are we doing this? I'm like, I don't know. It make, doesn't make sense. He's like, this would make, he's like, the strategy is broken right from the start with the, so we stopped halfway through. We're like, this isn't even worth finishing and put it away. So you miss that with Mensa Select. You don't, you make, you got a good game, even if it's not your type of game. That's right. You, too. It's a good game for most people. Yeah. In fact, that's a really good observation because it does get reflected in what's going on. The, the, the way it's done is it's supposed to be the out of the box experience. You don't get a chance to sit there and read the rules and prepare for it, if you will. You want that experience to be as if someone bought it from the store, took off the shrink wrap, and now we're trying. And so just that, the ones that really don't make any sense, the ones where it's missing something inside the game, sometimes production quality is not good. Anytime, Pauline has a real thing about it. She likes playing games where it's maybe a two, four page booklet that explains everything. When you've got a 30 page book, because it really is, some games are complex and you really need to right. explain what's going on, explain all the various different pieces, explain the ways and like example turns so that people catch on. And I get that, but that means that if you really wanted to sit down at family game night and play a game for a couple hours and the first hour was taken up and just getting set up correctly and figuring out how right. everything works, there's a different level of commitment of that kind of game compared to a card game that is like um, hearts, but it's got extra cards and here's how they're different. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's some games that you can grasp in a five minute explanation. And what, what often, uh, boy, we have some friends that are really great at this, that they've played the game. And instead of having everybody read the manual, they'll say, okay, here's how this works. Here's how you win and what matters. Here's how you start and what matters. So Oriel is great about that. Steve is great about it. And we can start naming the people that are really good explainers of that kind of stuff. That's a I can also, Yeah, I can also tell you some people that are like, they know all that stuff, but they don't let you know. They are using the fact that they've played before as an advantage. And it's, you're going to get one game out of me, but now I hate you. Now I know that you're like <laughs> the information that you, know, that, you're, that you, it's not cheating, but it sure isn't friendly. It's right. not, let's all have an equal chance at this game. And so I don't know what it is in people that drives them to do that. Don't you want to have your experience be better because you actually had competition and contention instead of just steamroll it over everybody because you forgot to mention the rule until two thirds of the game. Oh yeah. That's how that works. Oh, oh. It's funny. You mentioned that too. There are definitely games that I wouldn't play with my family. I wouldn't introduce people to but is something I might mention if I have a gaming group that I go with regularly. We've got Arkham Horror and we've got the Pathfinder card game, both of which are very big rules, take a long time to play and set up. And if you don't play it uh, more than once, you'll never remember how to play. Arkham Horror, Colin and I got a friend of his who definitely should have been in Mensa. He's that type. But the three of us spent four and a half hours playing the game, going through the rule book every turn and trying to, and we only got two and a half turns done. And we were like, okay, we're not even enjoying this because it's just so big, so complex. And the Arkham Horror game, if you look it up online, people that have pictures of their complete collection, 
800 to 1,000 cards in these <laughs> holders and multiple boards all put together. <laughs> Covers and, the tabletop, extends yes. into the next room. Exactly. Yes. Okay. I have a friend who loves Axis and Allies. He's like, but I can never play it because nobody wants to spend seven, eight hours playing one game with all the statistics and the, the tracking. And it's just hard exactly. to do. A core group of gamers that like doing that, are willing to do, it really is an investment of playing it haltingly, step-by-step, figure out how things work, and then they'll start the game over and say, okay, now we know what's going on. And then, and they find out, I don't know, like you mentioned Dominion often, that was one of the ones at Mind Games that I thought there really wasn't, it wasn't a great Mind Games experience because there was enough complexity that at first blush, it just seemed like, wow, this is a lot of tedious resource management and I'm not getting the thrill of it yet. And yet the people who liked that, that were willing to do the investment, that became one of their favorite games. You know what I mean? I think that another cool thing about going to mind games is it's you can learn so much about playing games with people. You can have conversations for hours and not get are people really competitive or not? Are they information sharers or withholders? Are they do they get angry when their plans don't work out or they just say, well, plan B, how about plan C? You know what I mean? There's and and we really there are all types, you know what I mean? People who are driven to go to mind games are sometimes they like the company. Sometimes they like the competition. Sometimes they like the novelty of everything. It's very cool to have that experience. And mind games have been going on for 30 years now. Yeah. I've been, I haven't been to every single one. There are people that have been to every single one. I usually go where like the, the expenses are not prohibitive. So I've been to 10 maybe. As you get to know the various different people, a little bit we talked about earlier, I have people that can't wait to play with them. I'll never play with them again because they were just such unpleasant company or right. they were, or whatever it is about me that it rubs them the wrong way. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm always joking around. I'm chatty. I'm, I, and yeah, there are some games that require more concentration and I don't do the chattiness to be a distraction. What's the point of a game if you're not having a little bit of fun? Exactly. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, I, so. I played magic for 25 years or so. You can ask my friends. That, <laughs> I'm rarely paying enough attention to win the game. I get into it in serious. (laughs) I I can win and I, I get make all, but a lot of times I'm like, I got one friend, we play with some of the same decks a lot. And I got my one friend that I'll play something. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, why? He's like, you don't want to play that. This is out. You want to play this? I'm like, oh, and he like tells me how to play my deck. Exactly. So so a couple of weeks ago when I was playing my buddies, I won the first three games in a row. And then my one friend said, you, you're not winning another one. He made it his mission just to make sure I didn't win anymore. Right. I still won a fourth one. <laughs> Colin still doesn't believe that happened. He's like, I've never seen you win four games in one night. I'm like, it's true. It happened. It really did. Exactly. I was paying attention. Things went lucky my way, whatever right. it was. But yeah, right. it's, it's kind of funny. I like playing well, but I really don't care about if I win. I like the act of gaming. However, if you win a lot, people interpret that as being that you really care about winning. And then they take it upon themselves to make sure <laughs> to that you knock don't. you down. And so yeah. Go ahead. You know what I mean? The fact that I read well and I think ahead five moves instead of two and that I get often the game mechanics pretty early. That's why I win. It's not because I'm trying to hurt you. Not because I'm trying to crush all the competition. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like I said, and, honestly, and I take all that back at Mensa. 
that's if you really are the guy that often <laughs> wins games amongst family and so forth, all you got to do is go to Mensa, get your head. Yeah, absolutely. really good at everything. And I love that competition where there's no, um, it, it's, it's not, that it's not easy, but it sure isn't a, a cakewalk. You know what I mean? It right. really is that if you have a little strategy going and then they make a move that lets you know that they saw your strategy and are moving to thwart it, it's hats off to you for something that might've been opaque to other people, but you saw right through my clever ploy and you're not letting that happen. I got out my game. I got to be yeah. smarter about and, what I can expect from my competition. It's really a cool feeling. And there's <laughs> definitely times I know that there's, there's the people that play sports that get into actual high school and stuff, whatever, playing sports, yeah. that competitiveness got to win. And that, yeah, you can have that in other ways. And I can definitely get that playing game that yeah. I'm on the opposite. There are sometimes some people it's like, okay, you've been an a-hole to everybody all night. You need taken down a peg and it may not be me, but I know <laughs> this person over here is gunning for you also. So between the two of us, right. you're not going to live this game. And you get that competitive mind going, it shifts into higher gear. But when you're just casual, especially with family, you're trying to downplay. You, you don't want to always remind family you're in Mensa because sometimes they use that against you. You want to be casual and play games and have fun. That's the big point. I, I barely remember most games I've won or lost, but I remember what we talked about or the, the weird things that happened or the things that made everybody yeah. laugh, like you said. Yeah. A couple of quick things about that. It really is in me. I'm not sure why that it doesn't matter so much that I win, but it does matter if I see somebody really being a jerk at yeah. how they play and stuff like that. It really does matter to me that beat them or that I don't give them an easy time of it because I, it's just, there's something about almost like bullying. I really stand up to bullies because I just hate it and yeah. I can't stop myself from doing it. There's, I'm going to try to describe this. I don't know if I'll be able to portray this. In the same way that I just talked about, hey, I had a little strategy and I could see that they got it and they moved to stop me. Sometimes that's not even talked about. While you're working on things, you're just like concentrating, you're doing things and you'll play something and then they'll play something in opposition and you just look up at each other and <laughs> smile. And it just all that telepathy of see what you're doing. I got what you're doing. I'm, I know what's going on. There's such a cool connection for the respect that goes with that. The joy of finding someone that is right there with you, and it's it's there's a dance that goes on in a really good competitive game that it's not competition, it's cooperation in a weird way. You know what I mean? There often they talk about at high-level games, Master Scrabble or whatever else, that if you have best play, that there's the games are more predictable if you really know that people are right. always going to do the best move they have with the tiles they have in their rack or chess is very well studied and that you know, there's really a best move in, in many positions and to recognize that someone is there that you can count on this is going to be a best play game instead of just a random try things game or or that someone is so random that they're disrupting all of that there's something really cool about like horses that are racing along and they're in tandem and they're just there's a really cool thing about that shared experience of we're going to do this this beautiful thing together, even though we're in competition. I don't know if I'm describing that well, but I love when that happens, when it yes. really is. It doesn't matter who wins. It matters that we both gave it our all and it was just, the game had to end somehow. And I was ahead by a nose or you were ahead by a nose. And, and <laughs> speaking of cooperative, there's a lot of really good 
cooperative oh, yeah. type games nowadays. Yes. Uh, I don't remember those so much when I was younger, but there's a slew of them out there for families with kids. There's a lot of games that work well where you're not competing against your kids. You're working together for a common goal. You're, um, you're competing against the game, if you will. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a whole year where we played Pandemic with uh, yes. a, a couple of our friends and just oh, that, yeah. you know, that whole thing of it's a different experience for some people to be like, okay, before I do what I'm going to do, I'm going to talk it out and see if anybody has another idea as to how this could be better. And yes. just some people don't do that instinctively. They really are. They want to have everything be almost like a fait accompli. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want anybody to gain same. And so, then don't play this game. But if right. you're going to play this game and we're going to figure out how to get out of this burning building together, you can't do something heroic, but, but not foolish, but not guaranteed success. And then drag us all down with you. We yeah. all have to be in on it. You know yeah, what I mean? Pandemic so. is a great one. We just got <laughs> the second version of Sentinels of the Multiverse superhero okay. one. Yeah, and for, actually, forbidden. I should be getting, oh, yeah, the, the Forbidden Island. Oh, my gosh. That is my, that's a good one with kids and with okay. family that doesn't normally play games because go. it's got that little bit of danger. And they, they're like, oh, I don't play games. I don't like games. I don't like competition. Well, I'll try Forbidden Island. And they get into it and the, the island's sinking. No, 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 move over here, move over here. You know, they, <laughs> they, and then they're like, what else do you got? That all the time. Uh, Munchkin for the longest time was used as that. But Colin said it's like Munchkin kind of is, it's not as interesting anymore compared to a lot of the other games that are out yeah, there. Yeah, there's not enough to it. Whereas like, yeah. And there's, there's at least two, Forbidden Island and Forbidden something. Desert, thank you, exactly. And, and I just, the fact that, Whoever designed those games was good enough. Like they must have play tested that so well to say, what's the balance here? We have to make it so that it's winnable, but not easy. And we have to, it's, it's really cool to see how much they've thought about it to make it so that there's really tension building. And you're like, wow, everyone's like continually <laughs> arranging themselves in their seats because they're really paying attention. It's a very cool thing nowadays in this era of continual partial attention to the TV and the phone and the laptop and whatever else to get something that the tabletop gaming that really it's, it's, it requires your full attention. It's a wonderful thing to have everybody put their phones aside to not be looking for what am I going to do with my extra time? No, this takes all your time. You really need to be thinking about everything that's going on. So right. I love yep. that. Yep. <laughs> all right. Cool. A wonderful session. Thank you so yes. much for taking time and for a little juggling of schedule and stuff. I no problem. really do appreciate that. Yeah, okay. of course. And I hope to see you up at FanDuel, Fan Expo, not FanDuel, Fan Expo exactly. this weekend. My guess is by Sunday, I will have walked the floor a lot. And so I'll probably be seeing what panels they have going on. But panels are also often sparser on Sunday because there's already people that are heading out and stuff like that. So my, my you know, it's just like three years ago, just before pandemic COVID kicked in. I, on Sunday morning, I had a wonderful conversation with Jim Steranko, one oh, of those wow. guys that's like a legend, but there was nobody else at his booth, and I wasn't monopolizing him, but I we must have talked for a half hour, 45 minutes, and it's it's really cool to know a lot about comics, even if you're not in the industry, because then you can immediately say enough so they know that you're not just a walk-by fanboy, but that, and anyway, because I'm older, they know that I've been around, and so we didn't just talk about what's going on now, we talked about Alex Raymond and Alex Toth and other older artists that were his favorites growing up and to be able to like name works of theirs and have a shared joy of that. It's he, I got, he, I got to make him into a fanboy for a while, but he was talking about what kind of stuff he really likes. And as he was coming up, who gave him breaks and who was dick. 
he did that. He didn't really bust anybody for being uncooperative, but he definitely he had a very interesting career. He was also an escape artist and a magician, but he's a oh, very wow. interesting. He was a pop culture icon besides a comic book guy while he was go, while those things were going on and and like his history of comic books this two volume series is some of the best stuff i've ever read about him showing how much he really understood what went into comic books from the from their inception onwards and how his time in them was a joy so wow. cool. there's almost certainly there's going to be people like that there this time that there's the older artist that's going to be like wow you created green lantern oh wow Colin Colin looked through the list. He's got it planned, what he's taking, who he wants to talk to. He's got it. I'm going to look for Tom and Ted, definitely, because I think think I've got the latest stuff that Tom came out with because of the Kickstarter, but I think I'm a little behind on a few of Ted's bloom and stuff. So I'm I'm going to pick those up when I'm there. One of the things I always do is they have Artist Alley, and sometimes they have, here's the main row where it's all the, the thronging crowds. And I love going to all the other places where it's like, I've never heard of you before, but this artwork looks pretty good. Sure, I'll buy it. And I end up buying 20, 40 things for just because I want to, because I want to support the starving artist, because I want to give it a try. Because, and so we'll see. That's my, that's me at my most uh, Medici phase where it's like, I wave my hand and give you my benediction. Hey, everybody, this looks really good. Come and buy this. You know, (laughs) cool, man. All right. All right. Take care, Stephen. You too. You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week.